Hey everyone, welcome to the A to Z or A to Z of sex, depending on what part of the world you're in. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, a sex and intimacy coach, psychologist, gender, sex, and relationship diversity therapist, and I am working my way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. Today, the letter is I, and I is for identity, and we're also going to talk about identity politics. So to that end, I'm going to give you the way that I identify myself. So in terms of my relationship status and sexualities, I am a queer, polyamorous leather woman. In terms of my cultural identities, I identify as a Jewish person, culturally Jewish person, an American and an adopted Brit. I have two people joining me today, and they're going to introduce themselves. Hi. I'm Eunice. Um, I'm a uh, community organizer and a trainee therapist. And my identities are queer, kinky, gray ace, polyamorous, Chinese-British cis woman. Okay. And? Uh, I'm Jonathan Kent. I'm a journalist and a writer. And I tend not to use identities, probably because I am middle-class, European, uh, I'm just like bog-standard white bloke, you know. And, and if you're bog-standard white bloke, Identities, I think, have a different role. So it's a privilege of background not perhaps to to adopt them quite so assiduously. Okay, so that's a wonderful introduction. So here's why I wanted to do this. So I'm older also, so I should say, because say, it, it's relevant, I think, to this discussion that I'm 59 years old. And so um, I remember a time where there were not very many identities to choose from. Um and perhaps where some of the reasons for adopting identities were slightly different. But I've noticed recently that um, people are turning up in my consulting room really anxious about identities at a young age before they've actually experimented with the identities. Um, and by that I mean... Yeah, my favorite example is of a young woman who was attracted to another woman and went out on a couple of dates with the other woman, but was suddenly panicked that that meant she was a lesbian and that she had to take on a whole bunch of stuff around what being a lesbian was. And one of the things that I said to her was to take a breath, right? I do this a lot. This is my style. I said, okay, take a breath. Listen. You don't need to identify right now. In fact, you don't need to identify ever if you don't wish to. You just need to experience and be honest and communicative with your partner about what you're experiencing. And somehow giving people permission not to immediately put themselves into a group makes it easier, particularly because we tend to change over time. So what I'm noticing is that people are, are gathering not just one or two identities now. There's like 10. People come with 10 labels, and they make a big deal about the 10 labels. And when things change, then it's problematic. You know, they feel bad announcing what the change is, or if they do announce what the change is, other people get upset with them. There doesn't seem to be much space for fluidity as much anymore. And when this hit home for me was when somebody came up with the term ambiamory because sometimes I'm poly and sometimes I'm monogamous. And I said, well, how come you can't just be sometimes poly and sometimes monogamous? Why do you need to label that to people? So that's where I want to start. What do you think the importance is of these identity labels? And yeah, start with that. Let's just talk about like how important do you think it is that we all identify ourselves publicly by these labels? Well, I tend to say that the label is the start of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's not the end. It's not even the conversation. It's just a way to find other people who are also interested in the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, it's a way to find community. It's a way to 
have that initial starting point that you're both interested in this topic, really. And I find that part of that reason that we have this worry about changing identities, which you mentioned, is that it's so thoroughly embedded as part of our access to community, right? If we don't have this label, are we allowed to continue to access the support, the acknowledgement, the validation that we get from these communities that we've built up relationships in? If we no longer, like even in the time that I've been, you know, I came out as bisexual when I was 14, and mm-hmm. over time my identity has moved more to queer. I still call myself bisexual because I still want to be connected to the bisexual community, but mostly when I describe myself, I call myself queer because there's a lot more, as you say, fluidity in that. So what's interesting, but, okay, that's a really interesting point, and I think I want to really pick that up that access to community, because there's two things that come to mm. mind from that. One is first, I mean, I, I originally identified as bisexual as well. And then my sexuality is much more complicated. So I chose queer because then somebody has to ask me what I mean. So I see it as mm. a starting point for a conversation. But when we talk about access to community by having the labels, that presupposes our communities are more homogenous, which is one of the things I'm having trouble with, Right. So if you're mm-hmm. straight, why can't you be in community? And I mean, I'm not saying you can't, but it, there's a there's a thing about not being in community. If if you're Jonathan, why can't you be in community with people who are heter- a bisexual, um, queer? Uh, do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, d- I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, my my sexuality isn't um, is 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 too complicated to be encompassed by straight. Mm. But I wouldn't describe myself as queer, mm-hmm. largely because I think a lot of people have paid a price to describe themselves as queer. Right. It's, it's almost mm-hmm. earned by experience and by uh, the things that they've given up for that, whereas I've paid absolutely zero price for it. And I don't... So it's not a, 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 a lack of solidarity because... I, I don't know whether the majority of my friends would describe themselves as queer. I know most of my friends would describe themselves as weirdos, which is why they tend to be my friends. Um, it's not it's not an yeah. identity badge, but um, uh, I just don't think I've paid the price in uh, to, to 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 adopt the label. So uh, so I'm going to apologize for calling you straight. I actually wasn't in, in, wasn't calling you straight, but I'm going to apologize for that because that doesn't really encompass your identity. But you would describe yourself starting out by saying, you know, box standard I'm, white a, guy. I'm a box standard white guy. So the, the, the supposition, which I actually think is true, is it's one of the, the areas I, one of the reasons I have issues is that we separate out based on these identities. And, and there are good reasons mm-hmm. for that. You know, we're persecuted in, in some identities. Uh, people experience different oppressions. They ex- have different life experiences. But what I think is getting lost is a more integrated sense of community, the ability to connect with others who maybe don't share mm-hmm. some of these traits. I I find it really interesting, actually, the um, that mention of having to suffer. And I mm-hmm. don't understand why you have to suffer to be allowed to mm-hmm. have the idea. I mean, that, I know that's not what Jonathan was saying, but there is this kind of mindset of, if you are not marginalized, as you say, yes. then you don't get to take up. And I I have been incredibly privileged. I grew up in an area of East London, like about a third of my friendship group since I was young was, you know, gay, bisexual, openly. And this was in a period where, like, I was 18 before Section 28 got repealed. So throughout that time, there wasn't really in school an acknowledgement of my identity, but I was surrounded by people who were very openly not straight. It's, I think and it's worth so pointing many, out. You know, sorry, it's worth mm-hmm. pointing out very quickly that Section Twenty Eight for people who haven't grown up in the UK was legislation brought in by the right wing Thatcher government in the nineteen eighties, if I'm not mistaken, to prevent dissemination of ideas about homosexuality in schools. Is yes, that right. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah, and so, so thank similar you. to the recent don't say gay bill yes in florida yes very similar sort of point um yeah sorry but um 
So in terms of my experience of being first bisexual and then and gay, um, I don't feel like I've really suffered. And so there is when you say, you know, the people before me who fought to make it more acceptable, they suffered. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of riding on their coattails, as it were. You know, I, I didn't have to suffer. I didn't get that experience of being at risk of beating up or spat on because of it just so happened that I ended up in friendship groups and around people that never for a moment made me worry about that. Let, let me put this in some context with my, my thinking about it. And there was a, an mm -hmm. article in The Guardian that was published July of 2021 by the columnist uh, Awa Madawi, uh, who, who I like as a writer very much. And she writes as a gay woman. But she's uh, was commenting on uh, the, the daughter of uh, the then governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, his daughter, uh, Michaela Kennedy Cuomo, uh, deciding that having flirted with, as I think it puts uh, puts it, uh, with describing herself as bisexual or pansexual, uh, she's decided that the identity that resonates with her most is demisexuality. And um, Madawi basically goes, Reader, I rolled my eyes. And so the, the, my reluctance to adopt some identities and to feel that I might need to pay a price is because when things flip in certain communities and it becomes cooler to be gay than it, or queer than it is to be straight, then I wonder whether there's a danger of, of things being co-opted. Yes. Or, or, or mm, valorised. Yeah. And, 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 and borrowed by people who really haven't been through anything. So, and then uh, just because it's cool. Well, and so some people will be cross with me about this, but I'm just, I'm going to speak specifically to demisexuality. Uh, again, this is my age. We had a word for that. It was called picky. People who don't have <laughs> sex with people. Seriously, there are people who don't have sex with people casually. We didn't need an identity for that. Right. Um, it's like for me, demisexuality is almost the converse of slut. And it was not OK to be a slut, but it was certainly OK to be somebody who was picky. It was what was expected. It was social. norm. It was a social norm. Can I, but, I would like to say as someone who does identify as demisexual, I will go sort of reference to that. Sorry, I interrupted you. Though. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, but for me, um, the, the problem with that and I'll, I'll let you I'll, I'll let you explain it. But the problem mm. with that is. I use that because it's an easy one because because I grew up with that as a normative thing, right? So I know that mm. there was a normative identity there. And the problem with that is if it's not being used in as an explainer and it work like mm. labels work well as an explainer, it's a shorthand for me to say to you if you if I'm interested in you, this this is my shorthand. And let's have a conversation mm. about what it means. But if it's being used as as Jonathan was saying like as a badge of some sort of honor or coolness, it becomes a way of keeping people out, not inviting people in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just in terms of demisexuality, it actually took me quite a long time to get to the point where I considered myself or talked about myself or referred to myself as demisexual or grey A. And I think I actually, um, that changed over time for me. So when I was younger... Um, the reason that I use that term, the reason I use demisexual is because for me, it feels viscerally different in my experience from when I was a lot younger. And this may be, I don't know, hormonal changes or just the normal kind of act of aging or whatever. But I notice a difference in myself from how I reacted to people. So before there was much more, I guess I would refer to it as I was able to notice like sexual arousal and sexual attraction connected to people that I was certain with, but I wasn't actually, like I didn't know them. Right. And for me, demisexual is a way to start the conversation to say there's going to be times, even with, 
people that I'm, you know, familiar with and people that I'm friendly with, I am literally just not going to think about it in the sense that it's not going to occur to me that this is part of the conversation unless someone explicitly sort of puts it front and center so for that, me, right? I, that's very... It's sort of a way to tell people that um, I'm not going to even notice that the other person is a potential sexual partner until a lot later. So what's interesting to me about that is that to me, and see, this is why I have trouble with this, right? Because to me, mm-hmm. we've got that, we've got gray ace, we've got other, we've got full ace, we've got all these things. That makes much more sense to me in terms of some of the more, the things further along on the ace scale, right? And mm-hmm. I understand you using that term as a way to say, listen, I'm not insulting you. I'm not, I'm not blowing you off. I'm not telling you that I am absolutely unattracted to you. I'm telling you that, that sex isn't even figuring on my radar at this point. And that it may figure on my radar later, but there will be periods of time where it just won't figure. And so that's about me. And you might need to be very explicit with me in order for me to notice Mm -hmm. that that's what you're trying to do. So that makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? Except that then for me, it's like you still end up having to explain all of that. And if I talk to two other people that are demisexual, I guarantee you I'm going to get completely different answers. Whereas when oh, I talk, but that's very queer, right? That's <laughs> queer, and I so I'm much happier with a with a broader category that means please ask me to describe my complicated sexuality than I am with somebody who tells me like I watched an interview with somebody who was ace talking to somebody who was hypersexual, and um, and um, hypersexual is actually a medical term, folks, and so sometimes it's mm-hmm. confusing when it then becomes. Um, an identity. It would have been better to choose something else. Well, but I mean, there's, there's the term megasexual that was coined by um, a couple of people in the States, one of whom uh, I, I, I interviewed. So, so maybe that would be a better that's term. Quite a good term. Right. So this person, I guess, was megasexual. And anyway, and this woman who was ace was discussing what her orgasms were like. Mm-hmm. That's very confusing for people who have not got a knowledge of all the different ways the term ace is used. And so I'm looking at it from the point of view, I'm well-versed in sexuality and relationships. I'm also pretty good at asking people what they're talking about and say, actually, I've not come across that, or I thought it meant something else, so it obviously means something different to you. Can you please give me context so I understand you? But average Joe in the street isn't going to do that. And one of the things that happens with this is that people will dismiss whole conversations that are hugely important on the basis that it's now gotten too complicated. So it was hard enough to get them Mm -hmm. to talk about lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, and trans, which was where it used to end, right? It was LGBT. It's hard enough to get people to talk about that and the spectrum of normality, which includes all these things. Then to add 10 more identities on the end of it, all of whom are saying, I am equally valid and important. And of course, every identity is valid and important. But to get somebody who isn't embracing any of this to have this discussion becomes harder the more things that aren't as cut and dry and in other people's minds get added. So like people think when you're gay, that means that you only ever have sex with somebody of your same gender when in fact you know there are a lot of people who are gay who have occasional sexual experiences with other genders and enjoy it the identity is different than describing what they what their attractions always are do you see what i mean yeah and i totally agree i think that there is a lot of um confusion and fuzziness around the edges just because as you say there are so many different options and yeah like like you I also have um times where I have to actually go okay this this one I don't I don't know what this um this particular one is I'm going to need to google this because I have no idea like I came across the term sexual, and you know say yeah like that sexual. sexual. oh like after the goddess Freya (laughs) I don't um, know where it comes believe- from. 
Is that it? Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not entirely certain. I haven't been able to find any um, origin point for it. Tell but, me, yeah, someone tell me what it means. Tell me what it means. Um, I believe it probably kind of the opposite of demisexual, where I, I believe it's the more you know someone, the less you're sexually excited by them, or like the more you know them em- emotionally. Which it's not after the again, goddess, like you say. <laughs> I, I I think Freya probably uh, would be much more appreciative of sex. To be Absolutely. <laughs> But, you know, there are terms when I I also um, do not have the sort of ability to, like, physically understand. I can understand something intellectually, Mm -hmm. like with aromanticism. I know intellectually what that means. I don't feel like I have the ability to, like, really understand deep down how that would feel. That's okay. That's fine. You know, different people describe things in different ways. I want to throw a spanner in the works because I'm a Mm -hmm. psychologist and because I work with people and help them to change things that they maybe don't like, aren't comfortable with, or things that aren't healthy. And one of the problems that I have Mm -hmm. with the number of identities that we have is that when something is your identity, it's part of you, you don't change it. So a simple Mm -hmm. example is, I can say I'm an, I'm an anxious person, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of my personality. I'm just an anxious person. My ability to change that and become less anxious, which is probably a preferable state of being for most people, is limited by the fact that I believe that's part of me versus I have anxiety. And if you come to me mm-hmm. and you say, I have anxiety, well, we can do something with that. You want to change that? Yes, I want to change it. But if you say to me, I'm an anxious person, and usually what goes with that is, and I'm always going to be that way. Because mm-hmm. you see it as part of yourself, when you, when you identify and you take something as an identity, it becomes important to who you are as a being. Then, you can't, then changing it is difficult. And why that's important is that some of these identities are taken on for not necessarily healthy reasons or they're taken on in response to something negative that happened so Mm. i see a lot of people who've been traumatized who go off relationships and they take all sorts of identities that have to do with not having people intimately close not just physically but also emotionally and they band together in community with other people who don't want but they're not doing that because that's who they are They're doing that because it was a response to being hurt and being traumatized, which means they're missing out on the possibility that if they resolve the trauma, they might feel differently. They might not, but they might. Mm -hmm. And they might then gain access to a part of life that can be lovely. I'm going to refer back to something that came up in our conversation a few episodes ago about my book, A World Beyond Monogamy, which is, the politics of belonging and not just the politics, but the social need to belong. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that, I mean, one of the, one of the things that I've seen seen that really made me think about this was the children's film, the Pixar film inside out, which is, I thought it was the best, best children's film I'd ever seen coming out of the cinema. And then I revised my opinion a couple of weeks later and thought, actually, no, it's not really a great story. I mean, it was a nice story. It wasn't a great story for me anyway, but it was a phenomenally clever way of explaining some of the basics of psychology to to really quite young people Mm -hmm. in a way that made sense Mm because it worked for me as well and this this thing of uh they talk about islands of personality yep and in a way that's what you're talking that 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 an identity such as queer or bisexual or poly or um kinky or or an ethnic identity all of these are critical to one's self-image but they also pushing the other way um, can be about belonging, so you can have you can have a push and a pull factor if if, yes. if you like. So you don't want to mm. give up the identity, uh, or you cling to an identity partly because it's part of your understanding of self, but it's also critical to your relationships with other people, and you feel perhaps that it is your bond with this other group of people who you're supporting. Well, that network. was what Eunice was saying earlier. Was yeah. like I'm moving if I move away from the bisexual identity into a queer mm-hmm. identity, I don't want to lose yeah. that group of people. Yeah. And you may well not, but it's all, these are the concerns, I think, that, that underpin our, our worries, our anxieties, our mm-hmm. need to belong is very, very powerful. And 
So we, we look for the things that we have in common. And I think the, the point that you were making earlier is that the internet has made it, for you didn't put it in terms of the internet, but in the last 20 years, the internet have, has made it ever easier for us to find people with similar ways of thinking and similar identities and so on, and to bond with those and make those part of our tribe or become part of an online tribe, uh, which can or, or may not become real rather than virtual. But at the same time, people are increasingly choosing to, to, to go with sameness rather than difference. Yes. And our ability to mm-hmm. do what we used to do so well in, this, in, in the UK, which is the social focus here used to be 20, 30 years ago, even more so prior to that, the pub. And in the pub, you need the ability to be able to get on with everybody because otherwise you get into fights. Yeah. And I mean, so mm-hmm. I also think that's really important um, because... And that's one of the reasons that I'm having issues with identity politics is you end up in an echo chamber where the only views you hear are your own. And I mean, we're all a bit older, but people who are being raised right now aren't necessarily being taught how to take on other people's viewpoints. I remember, you know, being taught to debate that was considered a very important skill for people to have. And part of learning how to debate in school was being told this is the topic and you need to take this viewpoint. And I remember saying to um, one of my teachers, but I believe exactly the opposite of that viewpoint. I don't want to I don't want to argue this case. I think it's reprehensible. And he said, and that's exactly why you're going to research it and argue it. And he said, I mean, mm-hmm. so clearly he said, you need to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes for even 20 seconds If you're able to do that and you're able to listen to somebody and their viewpoint, even when it disagrees with you your world will be ever bigger. Now, we're not teaching that anymore. And I see the results of that every day, you know. Um, so that's one of my areas of issue, and I think you're right. You know, we, we, we have, and I don't know how to make, redress that because, the, because people want to belong so badly and because there isn't a place, there's no, no longer a place where a wider community encourages belonging. And, to be fair, because of my background, um, I understand what it is to be marginalized. Like I did grow mm-hmm. up in an environment where there were Jewish people around, and so I wasn't marginalized in that part of the environment. And then I went out in the world and discovered that actually, <laughs> you know, I was part of a marginalized group. I didn't know that until I left home. I mean, I heard stories, but I didn't personally experience it. And then I personally experienced what it's like to be part of a marginalized group. So I know that some of the pressure to have a group that you belong to who aren't going to attack you for the things that you believe, you feel, or that are a part of you is horrendously important. But I also think the the idea of being able to get along with people who come from other groups and have other viewpoints is also important. And I'm not sure what we do with it. So which identities do you think are crucial that we absolutely need to broadcast? To be honest, um, I'm not actually sure that I, each time I think through each of my identities, I think, well, could I explain that identity using very simple words? I don't know if you've ever come across uh, Randall Monroe's thing, Explain the Book, where he tries to explain, like, complex scientific uh, concepts using only the uh, was it the hundred most common words used in the English language no but I'm and gonna have to this, go look for it, <laughs> it well it's it's really quite cool actually and he does you know drawings and comics and things it's wonderful um, he's the uh, creator of the XKCD comics mm. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of was thinking about my identities in that way. Can I use really simple terms that the majority of the you know people that I will ever come across could understand without using any of these terms? You know, not even queer or anything like that, mm-hmm. and still be able to get across what I'm trying to say. Yes. I, I think yes. There's there's nothing that I think I would need to absolutely use that particular word for to get it across. Wow, wow. So that's to me that's actually profound. Um, I am known for simplifying. I call it translating. 
And this is because, you know, I did, I've done therapy with people. I've taught, I do coaching. Um, but I've also, um, had a large part of my career doing, um, expert witnessing in, in, in family court and criminal court and civil court, mm -hmm. the vast majority of it in family court. And my job doing that is I have to assess sometimes adults, sometimes kids, sometimes the whole family. And then I have to communicate to a judge in words that make sense, what the issues are. And judges may be very learned, but they hate jargon. So mm. I got pretty good at being able to explain complex psychological complex complexes and issues and problems in English. So mm. I imagine, I think I do, when I explain myself, I, can, I do it in, in quite clear, concise English. But I wonder... Why I think it's profound is the idea of people doing that for an exercise and then seeing how much more connected they get when they're not eliminating people immediately and putting up a wall immediately by having a complex set of names that someone has to figure out. I mean, what, what do you think about that, yeah. Jonathan? How would you think that would be like? Well, I mean, I was just thinking just then of, of something uh, that uh, Meg John Barker, who wrote the foreword to Well Beyond Monogamy, talks in terms very much of what something opens up and what it closes down. Yes. And language has a very strong role mm -hmm. in that. So that we use jargon a lot of the time to signal knowledge and to exclude people who don't understand it. Business leaders love talking business speak. A lot of it is incredibly ugly. I spend part of my professional life trying to stop them doing that <laughs> and sounding like, uh, mm -hmm. even if it's the little things like, oh, leveraging and going forward and or, or, it's it's... Bollocks, I think, is the technical term. Um, even more in the professions where you you use a blizzard of terms that leave people really not following you. So, m having a background in journalism, I want to do exactly the opposite because it's. I think uh, um, it was. Um, damn, brief history of time. Yes, um, brief history of time is Hawking. Yeah, Stephen Hawking said that every. Um, equation he put in a book would halve the sales and i think jargon works much the same way every time you use a jargon word you risk excluding uh, more and more people and more and more people will tune out and there was a very very nice i've always remembered this i wish i remember which of them uh, uh, said this but it was a british labor party politician british socialist politician uh, from the uh, 40s and 50s it was either nye bevin or ernest bevin who 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 said um, I will always use in my speech to the Labour Party conference one word that people don't understand because it's playing them a compliment. And that would be the level that he would pitch things at. And I think that's perfect. So you're not talking down to people, but you're, you're, you're striving not to lose people. Identity terms, um, as Eunice was saying earlier, if they're conversation starters, if they open things up, I think that's really useful. If they're deployed in order to delineate you and us so that you're on the other side, you're out group and not in group, then they close things down. And I'm really averse to that. And so if there was a word that I tend to use to describe myself, the one that I think I would um, reach for most readily is probably Democrat and not in the term of US politics. No, Democrat in the term of the, the more... Um, I, I believe in democracy because yeah. it's the least bad system that we've got because it forces us to listen to other voices. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that and, and what comes up for me when you're talking about this is um, as a as a person of color, because Jews are people of color, um, who passes because I'm a pale Jew as opposed to a darker Jew. And there are Jewish people by, um, who are much darker than I am. Um, it's always interesting to me what people will say in front of me. And so when I think about which um, labels I use... Um, that's one that I'll often announce because mm -hmm. it, I, I feel it's not, as I'm older, I feel it's not okay for me to pass. When I was younger, I didn't really understand the privilege that passing gives you and passing was a thing you did so you didn't have to deal with a lot of shit. Um, but now I, I feel like it's not okay for me to pass. Um, that will shut down a conversation though. Like, so I look at which of my identities would I put out there in order to kind of invite people in. And it's fascinating to me. The other thing is the identities people give you. 
So mm. uh, speak to a whole bunch of cisgendered people, and I will tell you that many of them do not like the term cisgendered. And the reason they don't like the term cisgendered, and I've interviewed a lot of people about this, is because they didn't choose it. Right? Um, it is a term that is given to differentiate from trans. We have two things. You can either be cisgendered or transgendered. But 30 years ago, we didn't have two things. If you wanted to, if you were trans and you wanted to identify yourself as such, then you said trans. Actually, 30 years ago, you probably said transsexual and not transgendered. Um, but then you said trans. But that was differentiating you from everyone else. People who were cisgendered did not say they were cisgendered. And so that beca has become recently a controversial topic that nobody wants to talk about. I think the other thing that, that it was probably Eunice in a, another conversation said that the, um, one of the, the things about identity labels like demisexual is it puts everybody on the spectrum somewhere. Yes. Like, and, and cisgender does that as, as opposed to transgender because it may, means that you try to kind of get it I, 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 the, away from the idea that you're the default or the norm or what have you and just another person with just another identity. And it it's lends itself to a greater equality of identity. That only works if you're dealing with people who are more educated. And I think that's the thing that people miss. It only works if you're dealing with people who can understand the reasoning behind that. Now, I can understand the reasoning behind that. I still might want to pick my own term. Because it, it isn't necessarily that somebody is saying that, 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 that they're, they're the default, right? And so I get that. And so when I show up in an event, I will identify myself as cisgendered because I understand that. But if you look out towards the vast population, as you were saying before, that's not understood. So then it, this becomes a bone of contention. So it shuts people out who otherwise might be invited in. There's also the issue of how much do people need to learn in order to interact with you? So that's a question I've got for both of you. How much do you think we should be signaling people? And I have a suspicion as to how you'll answer given that you're trying to explain yourself, Eunice, to people without jargon. But how much do people need to buy into a belief system be knowledgeable about modern life in order to interact with you? I, so there's this term code switching, which yes. uh, previously sort of applied to like language, the way that you use language and, you know, um, which I do because the Chinese sort of side of me, does, you know, is more, prominent in my family setting than it is outside. Mm -hmm. The um, holy side of me is more prominent in some spaces than others, the queer side, et cetera, et cetera. And I think all of us code switch to a certain degree because we understand that the person we are in work is different from the person we mm -hmm. are when we're out with our pals, you know, for a night out. I think I'm quite conscious of that code switching and I try to adjust my language and adjust the way that I refer to myself and others in response to how much I think the person I'm talking to will understand. So I find that interesting because the term code switching is, I, you know, I understand it and it's a really interesting term. Mm -hmm. And of course I code switch all the time um, because I'm dealing with people from completely different walks of life. And so it's about mm -hmm. helping them to understand and also greeting them where they are. That if you, mm -hmm. if you come in with somebody, I like to use emotion for this instead of identity. So if I'm really happy person and you're somebody who is at the moment depressed and I come up to you and I'm like, Hey, everything's great outside. And it's wonderful. And it's fantastic. And I'm acting like, some people, some of my countrymen are very large and I can be very large that way, right? It's amazing. It's incredible. That's overwhelming to somebody mm -hmm. who is feeling depressed. They won't hear or understand me and they probably won't want to interact with me. However, if I approach them and still showing some of my happiness, but in a much toned down form, if I'm approaching them more at where they're at emotionally, there's a much better chance that we'll be able to communicate. And I think code switching is in part 
I mean, there's political reasons for code switching, and I'm setting that aside for a moment. And code switching is in part an effort to be able to communicate with people who aren't where you are. And so the acknowledgement that, like, if, if you're in a corporate setting, um, talking about your polyamory openly and loudly is probably going to cause problems. But you don't want to hide who you are, so you would talk about it if you, if you did in a much more limited and a very toned-down way in order to um, blend in. But sometimes it's actually, to me, sometimes code switching is a way of inviting somebody into your world rather than yeah. shutting them out. If you, because, because you can still mm -hmm. be authentic. I think there's a, 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 Absolutely. a very, yeah. I, I think there's a very big issue here. And it comes back to something we were talking about earlier and the politics of belonging and the politics of exclusion um, and the need for, democracy to function as a way of getting us to interact and, 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 and talk to people with different views. Something that I thought about for a long time, which is in a two-party system, for instance, the United States is a, a, essentially a two-party yes, system. Yes, it's pretty much a two-party system. Why political mm -hmm. parties don't tend to secure large majorities of the of the popular vote? They might in terms of seats or what have you, that's really how, how um, uh, the constituencies or the equivalents yeah. are, are, are structured. But why they don't tend to um, secure large majorities in terms of the popular vote. And it, normally if you've got two parties, it hovers around 48-52. It doesn't sort of like suddenly split 35-65, uh, says he doing the maths and hoping he's got it right. And, <laughs> and the reason for that, as far as I, I, my so strong suspicion is, and I did uh, in a previous life work as a political reporter for a bit for the BBC, is that political parties are run by activists who want power with giving away as little as possible. Now, in a democracy, mm -hmm. that means you only need to speak to just over 50% of the population in a two-party system. Right. If you have one like we do in the United Kingdom, which has become more plural, but the, the electoral system hasn't really changed to reflect that, yeah. then you can have a situation where you can get a majority on 35, 36, 37% of the vote, which means you can just, this is, you know, activating the base kind of thing, as people would say in, in America, you can put out policies that will just appeal to a very a relatively narrow group of the population because you can still um, uh, get a majority on the basis of that. And as society generally switches in that direction, and I think the idea of, uh, of us building communities online where we just reach out to the people that we need around us, and when we spoke previously um, about my book a few episodes ago, uh, I was talking about the Dunbar number, the uh, number that Robin Dunbar, the Oxford anthropologist, came up with um, about the number of relationships you can maintain you can only really, I mean, most people have a tribe of maybe no more than 150 people around them, uh, of which there are the five most important and the 15 next most important and the 50 beyond that and so on. We can really shut out most of the world, mm. but that is socially incredibly mm -hmm. destructive and we lose the tools to be able to have wider relationships. And that's the issue. And that's the issue yeah. right there. And that's mm -hmm. why, that's one of the reasons why I think this is so important is when people really engage in their echo chambers. Yeah. They no longer learn mm -hmm. how to have empathy for others. I was in a taxi cab um, yesterday, actually, with a lovely man who I would place, and I'm you know, normally terrible with ages, but I told him I was 59, and he said he was older. So I'm fairly sure from the look of him, he was in his mid-60s. I may be crediting him mm -hmm. as being younger, but who knows. Um, and we ended up in this political discussion. Now, I don't tend to do that very often um, for a variety of reasons, but we ended up in a political discussion. And he is he's a centrist, but he's right of center. And in some ways, I'm a centrist. In some ways, I'm absolutely not. Um, but I'm left of center. And, but the conversation was around the ability for people to understand somebody else's viewpoint. That's where the conversation started because um, something happened and um, our government came up in the conversation. And I said that what's frustrating me right now is that it seems that politicians absolutely don't understand what ordinary people deal with on a day-to-day -day basis that they're out of touch. And this was where the conversation was and that people don't have the skills to have that empathy. And that's why I think it's so important so that if you're only in that echo chamber, you lose the ability because you're not being forced. And that's the point to actually listen to somebody else's point of view and consider what their life might be like. 
and, and some identities actually require you to belong to that group or some groups actually require you to vociferously reject alternatives. Yes. And and that's mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I find it so frustrating. So it's not that I don't think that people don't need their own individual spaces, but these days we will argue for that without saying and there needs to be a communal space where we learn to understand each other because people don't have the skills to do that. And I also know that I have a lot of privilege. So, you know, I'm I'm aware of this and I'm aware that things look different when you have privilege. But I also have assumed privilege, and I think that's another thing, which is I've got a lot of privilege, but people will assume I have different privilege than I do. And I think many people are guilty of that, assuming that somebody's life, and I I will count myself in this, you look at somebody, you listen to them, and you assume things about their life that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to have the conversation, then how are you going to find out? So I don't know what the solution to this is. I think for me, I'd like to see more people do the hundred words thing. I'm going to take that, Eunice. <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to take that, and I'm going to. I'm going to see. I'm going to challenge people to make an effort to explain them their identities and themselves to other people in as simple terms as possible, and to invite inclusion and conversation. Because one of the things that's interesting here, and I don't know what I want the two of you to weigh in on this if you can is how we talk about diversity and inclusion while we're actually excluding people. Yeah, this is something that I've actually been more and more disappointed by the older I've gotten and the more about Hmm. nuance I understand. Um, You know, when you're young and you're fired up and you're excited, I think you maybe don't necessarily see how much gatekeeping there can be. Yes. Even in groups that are basing everything on, you know, we're diverse and we're inclusive and we want to be, you know, accepting and open. And then you actually get into those spaces and realize that actually a lot more people find it easier to just instill the reverse of what they've already experienced. This is my space. This is my space and you are not allowed to be here unless you accept my view of this identity yes. or this topic or whatever, which, you know, the left can eat its own, you know, sometimes, oh, oh which my is God. incredibly disappointing. Well, that's, it's, it's that's so why, heartbreaking. That, I know. That's why I say I'm a centrist because I, I have been mm-hmm. just as appalled by the behavior on the left as I am on the behavior of the right. And... Yes, I agree with you. There is a lot of gatekeeping that goes on. And and one thing, the word you used was nuance. And that's one of the things that I think is missing, that people don't, either they don't know how to deal with ambivalence. (laughs) Um, And I I would say that that's actually um, a psychological mark of adulthood when you're able to to, to sit in ambivalence. Um, And many Mm -hmm. people never get there, but they don't know how to deal with nuance or they don't want to deal with nuance. And most relationships, be they monogamous, heteronormative or as queer as fuck are mm-hmm. nuanced. And if there's no room for nuance, mm-hmm. it's really hard to be inclusive. Yeah. Someone the other day said, well, you know, I'm monogamous. So actually it's a lot easier for me. Everyone just knows what that means. And I said, Oh my God. Do they, do they really? Are you certain that every single person who's monogamous, has the same approach to monogamy as the one you just have. Oh, thank you. No, they don't. We know they don't. Yeah. Monogamy is so different, even between two people in the same culture. So, I mean, Jonathan Jonathan was talking about this in the earlier episode, was that, you know, there there are as many different relationship styles as there are individuals. And I often talk about that. And one of the things about being on Open House, um, the great sex experiment, is – you know, watching the feedback from people who are practicing non-monogamy talk about why it's not okay, the non-monogamy that these people are trying, are experimenting with. And I'm like, look, you know, somebody said to me, your show isn't diverse enough. Um, And I thought they were talking about um, race, which was interesting because it's quite diverse racially and ethnically. Um, And and then I thought, well, maybe they're talking about the fact that there aren't many queer people on the show. Um, No, they weren't talking about that. 
um, they were talking about the type of poly and non-monogamy and open that we were showing. And I said, um, mm -hmm. okay, you're right. It's not diverse. What would you expect? Well, and I got this whole list of all the people I'm supposed to include. And it, I said, okay, that sounds like a really interesting documentary. But the people who made the program, mm -hmm. which to be fair, I am in the program. I had a hand in some of its, you know, I had influence in some of the way it went, some of the way it was created because they did some things on based on my retreat and what I do. But I didn't make the program. But the people who made the program, and ultimately Channel 4 is the one who put it out, they decided what they wanted. And they weren't making a straightforward everybody sits around and talks documentary. That wasn't the purpose of the program. Therefore, I don't know how I would have helped people to open up in a setting what I would have done with people who had been, you know, in a poly triad for 15 years mm. and now wanted to do something different or were having problems. Mm. It's a different program, right? Well, triads and quads are sort mm. of made for TV. Relationship anarchy and um, open poly, so, sorry, solo poly. I mean, if you did a kind of like a, a, a TV reality show about someone who's solo poly, it's be, you know, Anna gets up in the morning, does her laundry, goes out to the supermarket, buys some shopping, come home, cook themselves food, goes out to the cinema with a mate, goes back home, goes to bed. It's well, it, so so I, it was really funny because the way that I ended up initially involved in this project was that um, somebody called me and said who had seen my stuff and had you know read my stuff and said, "Listen, we're going to do a program where we follow uh, you know poly people in their daily life, and we want a central couple, and we'd like it to be you." And I said, well, thank you, but no. And they were like, well, you know, we're not intrusive. I said, first of all, don't say that to somebody who understands what television is. I said, but that's not the reason I'm, you know. I'm we like, will train you to forget we're here, here so, so you let all your dirty laundry flap around in the wind in public. And then, and then we'll edit it. That's right. And then we'll <laughs> to make you look like a bad human. So what I have to say, uh, so, so what I said was, that's not the reason that I'm saying no. The reason I'm saying no is we're fucking boring. Mm -hmm. I, I, we are. I mean, we live in an authority transfer-based relationship, which everybody thinks they're going to see something interesting. But the vast majority of our life together, if you look at us, you would not know. If you don't know, you don't know, right? And that's because mm -hmm. we're ordinary human beings who live in a particular way. So that kind of program is, right. Um, it's, it's kind of funny because it totally reminds me of an experience that I had some years ago where you know, a bunch of the people I knew um, were asked, you know, would you mind if we ask you some questions, do some research, because we want to do an episode of this program on, you know, polyamory and ethical non-monogamy. And we were like, yeah, you can ask us some questions, you know, for research or whatever. And um, I, I did not agree to do anything filmed in the end because I realized where it was going from what the questions they mm -hmm. asked. But after they, you know talk to the people that agreed to be filmed, um, they asked one of them, well, would you mind like doing, I don't know, like a, a cuddle party or something? And it's like, uh, I, okay, that's not really part of my day to day. They had to create something. Like, would you mind creating something that's interesting? So one of the things that's interesting <laughs> in the program that I did was that it, it's, it is unscripted. And, and, mm -hmm. and so what, what you get is the real emotion of people. Um, and, and that's one of the things I liked about it. And of course it's edited and you're not seeing everything. Like, like somebody said, well, we didn't see the consent conversation. No, you're not, but it was there. But no, they didn't mm -hmm. film it because they have a balance of what they need to have on the screen for people to, to be willing to, to watch it. And they have target audiences. I mean, this is what entertainment is about. So that's fine. But what they didn't do was edit in a way that unsympathetically dealt with people. Like my friends were worried that I would be edited to look like, you know, I was somebody who you know, had really weird fringe beliefs and was pushing some agenda. And, and they didn't do that because that's not, that wasn't their agenda with making the program, right? They wanted mm -hmm. to make a program that was entertaining that would also give you a glimpse of real emotion and where people would learn things. So you had that whole thing. So the editing in this program is good. And some things were left out because it was none of anybody else's business. 
Like just because you see something doesn't mean you necessarily want to include it on film. So there was concern about the people that they were showing and potential impacts on their lives. And there was consent, there was consent, consent, and more consent. I mean, but you're not seeing that because it interrupts the flow of television. And I understand that it would be better if we could make programs where we did see more of that because people sometimes don't recognize where that conversation goes. But that's how it is. I suppose it, it, the long and the short of it is non-monogamous is an odd identity or consensually non-monogamous is an odd identity because it can mean so many things. Yes. It's a bit like European or mm-hmm. human. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I, and I like human. You know, somebody says to me, what are you? I can't tell you. I remember I went to teach in, um, in uh, the... Um, in the Republic of Ireland um, in 1993 while things were still happening. And um, I was teaching a particular type of trauma therapy and it was a cross-border seminar. And I entered the country and somebody asked me, what are you? And I found that a very curious question. And I said, "Um, human? And he was, well, no, no, what are you? And I said, what are you asking me? Because I'm really not understanding your question. I'm not offended, but I don't understand your question. And he was trying to get at, was I Catholic or Protestant? And I said, oh, I'm Jewish. And it was like, it was the first time that was ever greeted with a sigh of relief. Like I wasn't on either (laughs) side. And it's sort of, what are you? Oh, I'm human. I kind of like that as a coda to, to the way we wrap this up, you know? I, I tried that when my son was born and we were living in Malaysia and um, he's half Malaysian Chinese, but they they register you at birth and they want to know your race because it's a very, very a socially and politically loaded thing in Malaysia. As some people there describe it as a multi-racist society and um, they want to know his religion and he was about six weeks old and uh, you know as far as I was concerned he hadn't chosen one at that point mm. so I put down uh, under race mm-hmm. and put human right and the person behind the, the the government desk scrubbed that out and put Chinese and I'm like well you know do I look Chinese to you but they couldn't put Eurasian because that has another meaning there so I kind of like just let them on slide and under religion I put Jedi and <laughs> I stared at him really hard because you know, so so maybe my son is Malaysia's first Jedi, but um, because the Force is definitely with him. <laughs> but I, I, well, so, he's called. Well, he's called Luca. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and he's very, very lovely and ridiculously tall as well these days. But that's an aside. I think. I think the point <laughs> is that the, the the identities like human tap into the fact that the thing that will probably r- unite us most is an alien invasion. And then we'll re- realise at long last how much we have in common. Yeah. And and how much we actually mm-hmm. have the ability to get on because we managed to manufacture a non-human threat. At the moment, the biggest threat to humans mm-hmm. is other humans. And as long yeah. as that happens, that's obviously problematic. So I have a friend who, uh, when someone asked him, uh, his response was reluctantly human. Oh my, <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Eunice, if people want to find you... How do they find you? Uh, right now, Twitter is probably the best option. I'm at Eunice underscore Serena on that. Cool. And Jonathan, if people want to find you, how do they find you? Uh, Twitter is at Beyond Monogamy. Uh, also at Jolf Kent. That's J-O-L-P-H-K-E-N-T. And your book is A World Beyond Monogamy. It is out now. It is a wonderful, comprehensive look at non-monogamy in a variety of cultures instead of just being um, um, North America-centric, and I highly recommend it. You all know how to find me. Um, Next week, the letter will be uh, J, because that's the one that comes next in the alphabet, and I have no idea what we're doing yet, but you'll find out after I do. Um, If you want to suggest something for the show, a person to interview, people to interview, or um, topics, please email me. It's lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.com. Don't be offended if I don't respond to your email. I do get an overwhelming a lot of emails, but I make a list of topics. So put in the subject header that that's what you're doing. 
that you want. There's a topic for the show. Um, I make a list of topics and I do try and um, cover all of them. And I also try and bring on the people you ask me to bring on. Please, 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 please. I can't say it enough. Leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. People, for some reason, are very hesitant to leave reviews on podcasts that have to do with sex. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to be known. But it is really useful when there are reviews. If in doubt, just write utterly filthy because it can go both ways. Yeah, you know? that it gives can you deniability and other people will definitely listen because of it. That's right. And I mean, we, we do have actually a very large audience despite having very few reviews. So it would be lovely um, if people left some reviews. Um, if you want help. Um, one of the quickest ways to access me is on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Bisbee. That's B-I-S-B-E-Y. And there's a book now button on my profile page. And that's one of the quickest ways to access me. If you are wanting help around sex, sexuality, um, and particularly any gender, sex, relationship, diversity issues. So kink, BDSM, non-monogamy, authority transfer, and trauma. Have a great week. And look after yourselves.